Welcome to the Covenant Journey Podcast. We hope to inform, inspire, and encourage you to deepen your faith, knowledge, and love of our Lord Jesus as we explore the timeless treasures of the Bible. Join us now as we explore God's Word. On today's Covenant Journey Bible Podcast, we're going to be talking about the Bible as poetry or the Bible as literature. It's a fascinating study. I'm Matt Staver, founder and chairman of Covenant Journey. You know, when I was in college, one of the favorite classes I took was the Bible as Literature. We used a book by Dr. Leland Ryland. Now, this particular individual was not a Christian when he wrote the book, but he was a literary specialist. So he wanted to look at the Bible solely from a literary standpoint. And he looked at the Bible as literature only, not as the inspired Word of God. He wasn't a believer when he began his study, but his study fascinated him so much with the Bible as literature. Obviously, he continued to pursue that, and by pursuing it, he read the Scriptures and gave his life to the Lord, and he wrote the book called The Bible as Literature. It's out of print now, but it was a very fascinating story. So this entire semester was devoted to looking at the Bible solely from a literary standpoint. Now, obviously, it was incredible to go through this. I want to give you a brief overview of the Bible as poetry, the Bible as poetry. Now, we have different kinds of poetry in English. We normally think of poetry as rhyming, but biblical literature, biblical poetry is much greater than that. There's a large portion of the Old Testament that is written in poetic form. Let me give you just a few of the ideas. Some of it's going to be a little technical at the beginning, but then I want to give you some specific example of Bible verses, and you'll be able to see it for yourself. Biblical literature, or the Bible as literature and poetry, has a number of forms. One, it has the line-level form, just looking at the lines itself. It has what would be called alliteration. It is the repetition of a consonantal sound, like a consonant, in two or more words of a line. It might take a particular consonant, and it will reiterate it over and over again in that particular passage. Psalm 122, verses 6 through 7, is such a passage. Now, in English, you're not going to detect this. In English, it says, Entreat the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls. Security within your towers. Doesn't sound like it's alliteration, but in Hebrew, the alliteration is quite clear. It uses an SH constantly through that. Uh, In fact, the um, uh, passage there is filled with this alliteration. And so if somebody's reading it in Hebrew, it has the message, but it's also alliteration. It's one of the kinds of ways Bible poetry is presented in the Scripture. There's another kind... Again, these early ones, you're not going to necessarily detect, but I want to give you an overview, and then there'll be some that you'll be able to see very clearly. This one is called paranomasia. It's a play on words. It's a verbal pun, and it makes a specialized use of alliteration. And it's contained, for example, in the book of Amos, as an example. Amos chapter 5 and verse 5 has that. It says, For Gilgal will surely go into exile. Now, Gilgal has sort of a play on words with the rest of the passage when you read it in Hebrew. For example, in Amos chapter 8, verse 12, 
Amos sees a vision, and he sees a basket of summer fruit. And you're going to read just summer fruit in the English. But a basket of summer fruit in Hebrew is kayets. And he took this as a sign for the end, kates. He sees the fruit, kayets, and it represents kates. It has this kind of play on words. Genesis 2 and verse 7. God formed Adam out of the ground, Adamah. It's a play on words. Now, in your English verses, you're only going to see God formed man from the ground. But it's he formed Adam from Adamah. Here's an interesting one. You can kind of see this in English. And again, I'm going to get to some that it's going to be clear for you, even in English. It's in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 7. So the passage, I'll read the whole thing. For the vineyard of Yahweh of armies is the house of the Lord, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, and behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. So listen to that. He's looking for justice, but behold, what he sees is oppression. Now, in Hebrew, it is very clear of the play on words. In chapter 5, uh, verse 7, he's looking for mishpat. But what does he see? Mishpak. He's looking for tzedakah. But what does he see? Tzedakah. So mishpat, mishpak, tzedakah, tzedakah. So in other words, even in English, you can kind of see this. He's looking for justice, but he sees oppression. He's looking for righteousness, but he hold a cry. In the Hebrew, it's even more dramatic. That's called paranomasia. Now, here's a little bit more, and I'll soon get to some other very clear examples that you'll be able to see. There is not just the individual lines, but there's also what's called the couplet. Each uh, couplet is called a distic or a bicolon, which consists of two contiguous lines, each one related to the other by both form and content. Sometimes they have three related lines, and sometimes there's parallelism between these lines. The first one is synonymous parallelism. That one line says something, the second line says something of the same, but just in a few different words. This is in Psalm 78, verse 1, and you can read this and understand it even in English. This is synonymous parallelism. Here's the A line, and then I'll read the B line. The first line is, pay attention, my people, to my teaching. That's the first line. Now, the synonymous parallelism comes in in the second line. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Pay attention, be attentive. My teaching, the words of my mouth. The first line is saying the same thing in a different way as the second line. There's also what's called antithetic parallelism. It's the opposite. The first line says something. The second line says the opposite of the first line. It's called antithetic parallelism. This is Psalm 1, verse 6. Yahweh protects the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked, one is protected, the other is perishing. So that's antithetic parallelism. You see this in even the Gospels. Jesus used parallelisms 
synonymous parallelisms. He also used antithetic parallelism. He who will ultimately save his life will lose it. He who loses his life will save it. That's antithetic parallelism or synonymous parallelism because it's saying essentially the same thing. The one who wants to save his life is going to lose it. But the one who loses his life will actually end up saving it. That is part of the Hebrew poetic nature, and Jesus spoke in that as well. It became commonplace both in writing as well as in your expression. It was a very rich language. There's also something called formal parallelism, sometimes referred to as synthetic parallelism. This is where two lines have a formal relationship defined by rhythm or line length. The first line, or the A line, is semantically continued in the B line, or the second line. The couplet contains only one complete sentence, not two coordinated sentences, as in the other types of parallelisms. In the other parallelisms, the synonymous or antithetic, the first line is all by itself. Pay attention, my people, to my teaching. It's a self-contained line. The second one in the synonymous parallelism is be attentive to the words of my mouth. It's a completely contained line. But in formal parallelism, the first line says something, the second line continues it. Here's one from Proverbs 25, verse 18. Like a club, sword, or sharp arrow is the one who bears false witness against a neighbor. So the first line says something, but it's an incomplete sentence. The second line is part of what's called formal parallelism, which is line B, if you will. It continues the thought and completes it. Then there's something that's called climactic parallelism. It combines both synonymous and formal parallelism in the same. The B line echoes part of the A line, but then it adds a phrase that develops the meaning and completes the sense. So this is from Psalm 29 and verse 1. A credit to Yahweh, O heavenly ones. A credit to Yahweh, glory and strength. So it picks up with a credit to Yahweh, repeating it again in the second line, and it continues the thought about what you're going to accredit. A credit to Yahweh, O heavenly ones. But what is it that you accredit? The B line continues a credit to Yahweh, glory and strength. Now, there's also what we call other things uh, that are, and there's more that I can look at, there are different kinds of passages where you have an entire couplet with another couplet. This will be Psalm 27.1. This will be one sentence, line A, if you will. It's in two lines because of poetry, but it's all one thought. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? So that would be, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? Yahweh is my light and my salvation is line A. Of whom shall I be afraid is line B. But then the B couplet also has two lines consisting of these A and B, the one line and the two line. Yahweh is my fortress of my life. Of whom shall I be in Fright. Let me say the whole thing together. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? Yahweh is the fortress of my life. Of whom shall I be in fright? Psalm 27 and verse 1. Now, these are amazing passages. 
And it is very clear why, when it's in poetry like this, that it is very easy for somebody who is immersed in the Hebrew language to be able to memorize large chunks of the Scripture. It's like you having a hard time sitting down and remembering a rote memory of verses. You have to, you have to use your mind to remember, and what's the next sentence, what's the next sentence. But when you put it in music, then what ultimately happens is you have music that is making it so much easier to remember. You remember songs, for example, that you haven't heard for a long time, but when they start, you can be able to continue to sing much of that song from memory, even though you didn't force yourself to memorize it. Many of these uh, rabbis and the scribes memorized large chunks. There are reports of some that memorized the entire Torah or the entire Old Testament put it completely to memory. Now, there's a lot of narrative in the Old Testament. And then there's obviously poetry. Poetry is putting a lot of thought in very few words. A lot of thought in very few words. As someone who reads Hebrew, I can tell you that when you move from reading the narrative portion, just the historical overview, the, just the narrative discussion of the Scripture... To poetry, it is a much more difficult read because it puts a lot of thought into few words. There are places, for example, in the Old Testament where you have the blessing of Jacob in Genesis 49. You have narrative that brings it uh, before it, narrative afterward, but Genesis 49 is a blessing of Jacob, and it is in this poetry. It's very easy to sing or chant. The Song of the Sea, Exodus chapter 15, that's all poetry. David's what I call dirge, and I'll explain that in a minute, uh, with regards to the death of Saul. And Jonathan is 2 Samuel 1. There's a lot of narrative in 2 Samuel, but that particular chapter of chapter 1 is poetry, and it's in a particular kind of poetry. Hebrew also has meter, and in fact, that meter is something that can be used for a dirge. What is a dirge? It is a sad song. It's like a funeral song. Picture yourself going into a church, and the kind of music that is coming from the piano, as an example, is one of a sad funeral song. It has a different kind of sound to it. It has this heavy sound. Now, this 2 Samuel chapter 1, this lament over uh, the death of Jonathan, is a dirge. It is like a funeral song. Now here's something else that you can see, and you can see this in some of your English uh, Bibles. You won't see it in the words itself, but sometimes they actually designate A, B, C, D, or they'll designate a Hebrew letter. Psalm 119 is the largest passage of the Scriptures, largest one in the Old Testament. Psalm 119 is what's called an acrostic poem. What is that? It uses the alphabet, begins with the letter A, and goes to the letter B. It goes with the uh, Aleph, Beth, and then ultimately ends with the Tau at the very end, A through T. That's the beginning of the Hebrew alphabet and the ending of the alphabet, 22 letters. Now, when you look at Psalm 119, you'll say, well, it's a lot more than 22 verses. Right. But how Psalm 19 is broken up is every sentence of the first eight verses 
begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, or A. Then, verse 9 through the next eight sentences, goes on to the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, B, or Baith. And so it goes all the way through. It's the alphabet, each sentence having repeated it eight times. If you go to Psalm 34, it's also an acrostic poem. The first letter begins with the Aleph, and each succeeding word goes to the very next letter of the alphabet. Psalms 9 and 10. Now, in your English Bible, Psalms 9 and 10 are separate chapters. In Hebrew, they're the same thing. It's one and the same. Why do we know that? Because it's an acrostic poem. In Hebrew, Psalm 9 begins in the first verse with the letter Aleph. And Psalm 10 ends with the last letter, and it goes sequentially all the way to the letter Tau. The English Bibles broke those two chapters up, but in Hebrew, they're actually one chapter. Another thing, if you go to, for example, Lamentations. Lamentations combines two things. It combines the acrostic, using the alphabet, with the dirge, the kind of heaviness. What is Lamentations? It is a lament over... Jerusalem's destruction. Each one of those passages, each one of those chapters, is uh, essentially its own self-contained lament over the destruction of the city. And each year, Hebrews and pe Jewish people in read Hebrew uh, for the time of the destruction of the temple. Interestingly, both the first and second temples that were built they were ultimately destroyed on the same exact day of the Jewish calendar month. The same exact day of the Jewish calendar month. So what do you think they do? They read the book of Lamentations on that day as a reminder of the destruction of these temples, the first and second temple being destroyed on the same exact day of the same Jewish calendar month. But... Lamentations has 22 verses in chapter 1. It's an acrostic. Chapter 2, 22 verses. And then it goes on to triplicate AAA, BBB, all the way through. Uh, so in other words, it has 66 verses in the middle chapter, using three verses at a time for one alphabet going to the next one. Then chapter 4 and so forth have the 22 verses each. But it's also in the form of a dirge, which means that it is this heavy-sounding kind of funeral lamentation song. So it has that kind of idea of a funeral song. The Bible, by the way, is just an incredible, an incredible book for so many reasons. It has simile in Hosea chapter 5 and verse 12. Simile is... I am like a moth to Ephraim and like a dry rot to the house of Judah. It has metaphor in Psalm 18.3. Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock. I take fortress in him, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. We can go on and on about this. This is just a brief overview. I want to hopefully whet your interest into the incredible beauty of the Bible. And this is why when Dr. Leland Riken started to research the Bible purely as literature, he was fascinated with it 
And obviously he's reading the scriptures, and he gives his life to the Lord, and he wrote this book, The Bible as Literature. The Bible is the inspired word of God. It has something to say on all the aspects of our life down through history. It is our guidepost. It's our map. It's our GPS. Oftentimes, unfortunately, we have so many different versions that are so easily accessible on our smart tablets or smartphones. People died to give their lives to translate this, to transcribe it, and we oftentimes either keep our Bibles on the shelf to collect dust or we have them in our smart tablets and phones and we never access them. I encourage you to open up the Word of God. Read it afresh. Read it every day. Read it quickly. Read it slowly. Do word studies. Spend some time in the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful, and the Word of God will not return void. It ultimately leads to one conclusion, and that's God's ultimate plan of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, who came to live as we, suffered and died for our sins, rose again, and offers each one of us eternal life. The Bible is an incredible word that gives us guidance and direction to our ultimate destiny, not only in this life, but in the life to come. For more information, visit covenantjourney.org. You've been listening to the Covenant Journey podcast. We hope that we have informed, inspired, and encouraged you to deepen your faith, knowledge, and love for our Lord Jesus as we've explored the Word of God. Visit covenantjourney.org where you can obtain additional notes and information to enhance your study of the scriptures. The website again is covenantjourney.org. You can also email us at cj at covenantjourney.org. Share this podcast with your friends. Visit covenantjourney.org.